Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all 7 continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Chaz, how are you? I'm very good, Chris. How are you doing? Yes. Besides the technical issues we seem to be having, which yeah. apparently we're blaming that on Mr. Branson's broadband, mm-hmm. uh, everything's wicked, mate. Absolutely wicked. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, it's, it's the other way around, mate. I, I try and get guests whose life I want to be living and... and, and and yours at Life of Adventure certainly seems seems one of them. Yeah, hopefully. Yes. Um, you're on a boat, obviously. Yes. Uh, my friend, um, Tim, he's, he's let me stay on his boat while lockdown's happening. Obviously, I, was, I live in a van for the most part. And um, during this lockdown, you know, obviously, we, we're not very free to roam. So he's let me stay on the boat with him during this time really brilliant so there's two interesting things what's it like living on a boat and then i'm going to ask you what's it like living in a van uh it's it's good you know i mean the boat's stationary at the moment so we're not cruising or anything but it's nice it's a nice little cozy place got a log burner and it's quite a nice atmosphere around as well everyone sort of like um you know similar minded in the area so it's quite a nice place and Living in the van, you know, I like being able to move around and it's easier for work and I can park anywhere, you know, it's, it's um, whatever I look outside the window is, is my home, you know, if it's a mountains, forest, rivers, I just like to drive around and, and be in them places, really. Is it, um, is it like a camper van or like a transit type van? Uh, it's a camper van, but I... At the moment, I'm doing a new one up. I was living in a Mercedes van for a couple of years, and then I bought a big transit van, which I'm converting at the moment, whilst this is obviously happening. So, um, yeah, it's quite a big, big transit van, which I'm hoping going to be like the ultimate sort of expedition-type home for me once it's wow. finished. I stayed in a little t- t- tiny Toyota minivan that my friend had converted into a camper. Uh, he'd even put a, a triangle-shaped double bed in, so, so it made more room at the back for cooking and storing your equipment. And he had all his snowboarding gear un- underneath the bed. I'll tell you what, Ooh. it was one of the most fun things I've ever done was staying in that van. I drove all, drove all around New Zealand in it for a few weeks. Nice. Just great way, really great way to live really yeah it's amazing it's amazing how much you can actually fit inside the van and all these little nooks and crannies you can fill with different things it's really good so you are a fellow of the royal geographic society which is you know history personified um goes back to the you know the days of british exploration when we were sort of first colonizing many parts of the the globe yeah how i'd like i'd like to know how as a young man so as a boy did you get the adventurous streak what was it something yeah, I mean, red 
I got, it's it's always um, a question I always I'm, I'm never I'm never fully able to answer in like there wasn't really anything that happened in my life I don't think that made me want to be this sort of way but I think genetically I, or just just the way I am as a person I just like to explore and, and I always wanted to be outside in different environments I always wanted to push myself further than other people you know if I saw a hill or a mountain and I'd want to climb it. I'd want to be camping in the forests. I, I guess you know there was there was some stuff like I did a bit of Duke of Edinburgh and I was in the Scouts for a while and um, I just wanted to be outside all the time. And I don't, my parents were you know the complete opposite. They don't really do much outdoor stuff. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know where I got it from in that that side of things. But I just always wanted to do it, you know. And, and as soon as I got to an age where I could travel and, and go further, I just got a real taste for it. And, I've never really stopped. Did you read adventure stuff when you were when you were a kid? Uh, I guess I guess so. I, I, not necessarily about like real life adventure. More like you know, like um, I don't know, sort of adventure story books and sort of similar sort of things that might want to inspire me. You know, like Enid Blyton, you know, and sort of Famous Five and all that sort of stuff. Really, that yeah, I, I guess I, we, I read all of our sort of adventurey type books because it it i just wanted to be those kids going away on these amazing mystery tours and going to you know going to cornish islands and finding hidden railway tunnels and all this kind of crazy stuff but i tell you what had a massively profound effect on me was willard price novels okay did you you read any of them i haven't no i've never read i've never read any um, yeah. it's probably a little bit like the J.K. Rowling books is I reckon as an adult you could read Willard Price and still really enjoy them um, he wrote about two boys Hal and Roger and their dad owned a zoo in, uh, in New York bit of a contentious, contentious issue these days but back then it was you know we didn't, we didn't know such things but the, he would send his boys on expeditions around the world to to capture rare species for his zoo and as such each episode or each book would have a whole adventure based around them say in the in 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 the uh, african jungle or you know in the congo or uh, or in polynesia diving and all these and i would sit in class with my exercise book like this and i'd have the willard price book inside the exercise books and I'd just be reading that the whole um, lesson. You used to read yeah, a book, book in a day. Um, I think you've inspired me to want to read them myself now, I think. It's sounds, sounds fascinating. He's going to, uh, he, his Waterstones will see a spike in his books now. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have a go at that. So, did you study anything upon leaving school or coming to the end of school that would help you go on? go on to live this adventurous career um i you know to be honest i wasn't really that focused at school and um i think i was always just a bit of a daydream i always wanted to be out doing stuff you know and, and i wasn't really academic as such and as soon as i sort of left school all i wanted to do was just 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 do you know just travel and move around and i, I remember working for um like a show a show like putting up marquees traveling around doing that when i was 16 and um i ended up going off and working at butlins and, and just just wanted to do sort of 
I didn't really have any education in mind, in mind. And I remember doing a test at school that, that, that basically tells you what you'd be suitable to do education-wise. And um, I, I put all all information. It came back with like you know animals, wildlife, you know sort of environments. And then for some reason the result was um, information technology. And I thought, like, how is that possible? And then I pursued a career in well, I, I went to college and did you know computers and. I soon realized I didn't want to do that. I don't know how, how that came about. And then, yeah, I, went, I worked away. I worked away. But, in, but since, you know, since I, you know, sort of focused more on what I really want to do, I've, I've gained my mountain leader qualifications and various different outdoor sort of qualifications and, and you know, became an expedition leader and bushcraft instructor and stuff like that. So I was always going to join the military when I was young. That was the main thing I wanted to do. And, I never did, but that was always something throughout school. I was in the cadets and things like that, and I always had a sort of can I say, that really. Just going to say something, mate. Is uh, I, obviously I get a lot of military guests, ex-military myself. Um, was talking the other day about this SAS Who Dares Wins program. They're doing the celebrity version at the moment, right. and obviously it kind of goes without saying that. The, the sort of people they have on the show and not really military material, probably by definition of the fact they haven't joined the military, done a few years in a unit or a regiment, and then decided to go for SAS selection. So it, it, it's obviously the contestants are not coming from that kind of gene pool, if we can call it that. Yeah. But my point was you didn't, even from their personalities, you just don't get the sense that any of them would really be SAS material, right? Or that kind of thing. Just by talking to you, you could so easily be another Marine. It's, it's right. um, for anyone at home that's wondering, you know, what's the military put? It's, it's this kind of, I don't know, this kind of unassuming, you know, yeah. humble, humble sort of nature. I'd like to think I, it would have been something I'd have been good at, you know, and um, yeah, I, I just never, I think I just wasn't very good at taking orders. And, and when I was young, I just wanted to sort of, you know, be myself and travel around. And when it came to joining the, the army and even later on in life, I went to join the RAF regiment and it was just a case of the process in my mind just didn't really fit with the actual, what I had to do. And, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I would have been good and I think I would have enjoyed it, but um, it never happened, you know. Mate, you don't have to follow orders in the Marines. That's why we spend most of our time in trouble. <laughs> well, I did at least. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd have been okay once I passed out and things. And, but yeah, get into that. And so talk us through then. How did you get into your first sort of expeditions and stuff? Um, well, I sort of, Obviously, back when I was at school, I was doing like the DV and cadets, and I was sort of getting a getting a taste for it. Really, I didn't hadn't really done many expeditions as such. And when I when I left working at Butlins, you know, I was working in kitchens there, and I didn't really have any kind of definite aim of what I wanted to do. And I ended up buying a round the world ticket. I went to New Zealand, Australia, America, Southeast Asia, and I, I just just booked a ticket, and I was gone. And after that, I couldn't really stop. You know, I worked in New Zealand, I worked in Australia, I traveled around, but did travel across Africa, you know, in overlanding Africa and 
I just traveled for about eight years really before I even stopped and realized what I wanted to do and then obviously came back home and started doing my outdoor qualifications and getting a mountain leader award and, and focusing on actual expeditions and you know this this last five years I've pretty much done some big major expeditions and sort of the more I've done the more um, extreme they're becoming really. So when you went out in the big wide world can you describe that for us what what how was it rocking up in a foreign you know a foreign land for the first time getting off the plane putting your backpack over your shoulder and going for it? Uh, I'm always craving to do it anyway and I always wanted to do something like that so the actual lead up to it was a bit like a bit nervous because I wasn't sure what to expect but as soon as I sort of stepped foot you know in a foreign country and I started traveling and backpacking it only took a few days and I just felt felt amazing you know felt like this is what I want to do and I just felt like I was anything that was on my weight you know the weight on your shoulders as far as things back home or people's problems and any kind of work-related ties, you know, all that's gone and you're just, you're just free and you're traveling and that's, that's all you've got to focus on, really. So it was just, it felt incredible. And even to this day now, you know, I think of doing it, I feel exactly the same as I did then. You know, I've got that same exciting feeling about all that weight's gone and I can concentrate on doing this journey and this, this, this sort of trip, right, really. I so much uh, relate to you. You... Once you get to the once you get to the airport, that's it. Yesterday was yesterday, and then yeah. you live you're living in the now. It's 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 a real, it's like, and also there's quite a lot of, um, it's quite stressful building up to go to going away, isn't it? There's so much stuff, especially if you're leaving like property at home or or whatever it might be. Yeah. There's so much stuff you have to get in place, and I find. Up into an expedition, I'm doing it right into the last minute. Literally, there's normally one or two things I'm like, I ain't got to, I'm just going to have to leave that. And then I go to the airport, and the second I'm in that airport, my bag's checked in. I'm, I'm in, I'm in a different, I'm in a different mode. Yeah, exactly. Free. I mean, yeah, I think because I lead expeditions, there's always so much to organise as well. And you know, I think me living a minimal lifestyle with a van. You know, everything I've got's in that van. I have to find something to park it that's obviously safe. And then, you know, all these other little bits and pieces like getting your visas, getting your equipment, getting your sort of anti-malarials and whatever else you need. Just, there's a list of things that you need to do. And once you've got that in place, you know, you've got no real worries. Well, I haven't. I guess people with like homes and things have got more to worry about. But yeah, so, it's really good. Charles, traveling. Let Let's start with um, what's been your most alarming moment were you ever afraid for your well i mean i don't mean your expeditions now i mean you're traveling the world you can get into some bloody precarious situations there's a section in the lonely planet guidebook called dangers and annoyances right and it lists yeah. all the things that a backpacker needs to be aware of so you don't get ripped off murdered raped or or well, dead. Dead is murdered, but I'm saying it twice, folks, just, just so you know, right? But all those things in there uh, have happened to either me or somebody I've been with, including the rape and the, and, and, and the, and the death. Um, yeah. Did you have any experiences like that? 
I've had, you know, unlimited amount of experience. I guess expeditions is completely different. I've, you know, there's so much that's happened on expedition that was beyond them, them sort of categories, really, you know, sort of kidnap and, you know, near-death experiences and wild animals and things like that. But, you know, backpacking side of things, I think when you're backpacking, you try and do it cheap. So you'll stay in sort of areas that maybe aren't as uh, affluent as, 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 you know, you imagine the country to be. You'll stay in little cheaper places. and I've had a lot of, you know, sort of people shouting abuse and, you know, kids throwing rocks at me and stuff like that. And, you know, I've had quite a lot of uh, hostility, but even just backpacking, you know. But I think the thing with backpacking, you, you, you're following a set route and you've got, you're going to maybe like attraction to attraction. And um, I always feel quite safe when I'm backpacking, really. But, you know, on expedition, I've had, you know, just think crazy amount of um, problems you know and I've, I've seen you know I've had um, on expedition for example I've had uh, you know dead people uh, in front of me you know there was a car a big bus that went off the road and a number of dead people on the road and things like that and I'm trying to resuscitate these people and get them in vehicles and where was this Chas? That was in Malawi a couple of years ago but that you know on expedition itself when I've been walking these rivers I've had I was kidnapped and beaten and, and put in a room for three days. I was, you know, I ran out of water in, in certain areas and I had to try and get down. I fell down a cliff, smashed on my leg, broke my nose. I just, a lot of, a lot of problems with, um, so the, with, the dead bodies all over or the dying, the, the injured people all over the road. Was that, a, I'm going to guess that was a bus crash, right? Or shower. It was when I was leading an expedition a couple of years ago. We were driving along and everyone in the bus was pretty much asleep and I was sat in the front with the driver and I could see in the distance there was a, a like a, you know, and you sort of half think, is it, is it really happening? And I could see a minibus circling in the road and going down this hill. And then I said to the bus driver, obviously it's pull over. And me and the bus driver jumped out. There was a teacher in the back that jumped out with us and, I grabbed my first aid kit and and there was the numerous people that had flown out the windows. Uh, there was people crushed inside the, the, the vehicle. There was people obviously bleeding and heads cracked open. And it was just, and it, you know, horrific. It was a bus, yeah? Yeah, it's like a mini. You know, in Africa, they have all these minibuses filled with yeah. people. And, and it was it was one of them. You know, there was and probably about in, in um, such places, what they used to call third world or developing countries, now now I believe the correct term is majority world countries, The a lot of the drivers are just absolutely, they, they, they just have no understanding of the danger that, that yeah. and the speed they drive, isn't it? And a lot of them drive really drunk as well. Yeah, I mean, they drink... They some of them don't have licenses, some of them are underage, you know, it could be, there's some dodgy. I mean, I, I remember being in one minivan and this was in Zambia. We were getting a lift from one point to another, me and a friend. And um, this one bus driver we were with, there was loads of these minivans, but the one we were with, he must have had a dispute with another bus driver. And before we knew it, we were being chased by this other van and then these other cars joined the chase and we were getting... The, the money, the mini van driver we were with, he was going off road and they were, they were following us, and we were thinking we were all going to get shot down or whatever. And in the end, he crashed. He crashed the bus I was in, 
into like a load of coal, you know, charcoal sort of sails. And um, luckily he crashed where the police were. And But they dragged him out of the car and they were whacking him and beating him and he was unconscious. And me and my friend in the back of this van were just like hearts in our mouth. You know, it's just what is going on here, you know? I've, um, I've driven a, a few times actually. Um... I've actually driven up because I think I cycled down the most, it's called the most dangerous road in the world. Mm. If I remember right, it's Bolivia. It's one of these roads where they've, they've had to carve it out of the mountainside because there's no, yeah. it's just a steep jungle, vertical cliff goes down at times, hundreds of hundreds of feet or, you know, hundreds of meters. Um, and the locals still, drive like absolute idiots and every sort of quarter of a mile there's um uh, some statue or, or some plaque commem commemorating backpackers that have died traveling right. that road so you'll get this is sven and and you know so and so christina from sweden died on this spot um living their life streams and all this sort of stuff and it, every so often you look down into the jungle and there's a bus that has just spun around. Oh, it's gone off a cliff. Yeah. So it's, it's just gone into free fall, spin it, or it's rolled down the jungle spinning. And of course you haven't got a hope of surviving that. And um, yeah, when you get to, I drove to India once, so I drove a bus to India. It's quite funny. It's perfectly normal, say in Pakistan or wherever, to to just think this road's too rough. I don't like it. I'm going to go on the other side of the road and I just drive. It's actually not dangerous because everybody knows that's a normal thing to do. If you yeah. do it in this country, everyone will wet their pants, man. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, interesting. Interesting. I I don't want to talk. To um too much about me but it, i will say i my last actual world the, the my last world travel i got kidnapped in the south american jungle um i've done a video a, 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 it's, i've done a podcast about it for people listening uh the time before that i did a world travel and i got Oh man, I got attempted robbed about eight times, of which I think they 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 got away twice with my stuff. Fortunately, I never got robbed at gunpoint, which a lot of people I met had done. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it can be really dangerous. A friend of mine was raped on the beach in Barbados at yeah. uh, at Machete Point while her boyfriend, had, you know, was powerless to to sort of help her or you know risk getting his head chopped off if he tried um it does yeah you've got to be on your toes out there you know as i say to everyone never go on a beach never go on a beach at night um so yeah so you did your world travel well any particular favorite country i get asked this a lot um i think you know when i was actually traveling the world for the first eight years, I spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia, Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Burma, 
sort of um, Malaysia, them sort of areas. I really loved cheap to travel. It was people were friendly. You know, it was uh, amazing beaches, amazing sort of jungle areas, amazing mountains and things, and really accessible, really easy to get around. So I loved I loved Southeast Asia, but yeah, Africa as well. There was the you know the draw of the wildlife. It was incredible. Like, I spent a lot of time in Zambia, Namibia, Botswana, you know, sort of sub-Saharan African regions, really. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Every every country's got, as you as you know, you say, every country's got its own sort of unique sort of pull to it and draw to it. That that you, um, yeah, I could say I could say I could say a load of countries that I, I, I like, and I, I don't think there's one particular area. I think I'm quite open-minded to sort of see that every every country's got its its unique sort of draw if you know what I mean have you been in Mozambique yes that's where I was kidnapped in Mozambique um yeah a couple of yes. years ago so um yeah you were there I reckon it's changed a lot since I was there then I was there in 2000 so for the millennium um, right. I, I taught street children uh oh, at a place cool. called Nicala Porto which is is Nampula province uh, near? I think it's I think it's near Maputo, or or I might be getting my geography wrong. But yeah. it was everything was just shot, riddled with bullet holes from the the two civil the two war. First they fought the war of uh, independence, then they fought a massive civil war. Places riddled with landmines. It's real. It's a real shame. You see all the the old colonial architecture, and it, you know, I'm not not defending um, colo colonialization. What what's that word? Colonization. I'm not I'm I'm not making a judgment on that, but I'm just saying the old Portuguese buildings were beautiful. The streets were all boulevards, so all tree lined, and so uh, yeah, incredible. But I'd be interested to go back there now to just see how much it's developed in because it was yeah. it was ripe for tourism, um, except for the landmines. Obviously, you don't want to put your beach towel on one of them. Um, no. But but um, yeah, tell us about your kidnapping. So it was when I was walking the Zambezi River, the length of the Zambezi. I had to go the finish, basically the last part, the last sort of third of the Zambezi goes through Mozambique. And um, I'd had several warnings about going to Mozambique about the two political parties that were still fighting. There was a bit of a civil war happening, especially in the Zambezi region where I would be walking as well. So when I got into the country, I had some sort of help from some local sort of lodges and things, and they would guide me some of the way around Lake Korobasa. But as soon as I reached a part where I was on my own, um, I walked through a village, quite a remote, really remote village, and. Um, what happens obviously in Africa, they call you in and you speak to the headman, the chief, they want to know why you're there, what you're doing, etc. And that process was happening, but they were speaking Portuguese, so I couldn't fully understand the whole conversation, what was going on. And they had someone translating a little bit for me, uh, but there was about 300 people around me in the end of this sort of meeting. Uh, in the end, they didn't believe my story. I was grabbed by a load of guys, dragged along the floor, they were kicking me and, and whacking me. and Next thing I know, I'm in a room, a uh, mud hut in the middle of the village, locked in. And uh, I was there for three days. The third morning, I, I, one of the guys that was being quite reasonable, he managed to, I managed to talk to him a few times. He let me out the third morning to go to the toilet. 
and I had all my stuff with me and I just 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 went I just continued out the village and I didn't look back bloody hell so you uh you escaped yeah I guess it's an escape isn't it but I guess he's I think what 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 it seemed like with him is he wanted me out of it he didn't know what to do no one really knew what to do with me I don't think and, and with him letting me out and um, me walking off, I think he, he looked like, what do I do, what do I do? But then he, I think he was also relieved that that problem was now solved, if you know what I mean. So I was gone. Hopefully that's what he thought. But when they were dra dragging you through the village, Chaz, you must have thought your number was up, didn't you? Well, it was. It, this, this meeting had gone on from like four in the evening till 11 at night. And um, I've been sat there, you know, my bag, and I think just waiting for an answer if I can go through the village. and. If I could sleep in the village, you know, etc., which I did, obviously, but the um, yeah, so I didn't really know what was going on. I could there was a lot, there was a lot building up to it, and a lot of ag aggression. People were getting quite aggressive and quite angry. And when I when I got dragged in the room, I, I really part of me was just tired and frustrated. So I was happy to be in the room, but then also I just I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, it was really difficult to to know what what, what was going to happen at that point. You can see, can't you, why bloody tra travellers and tourists go missing in such places. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. For our audience listening, you, you need to factor in here that, that superstition and witchcraft is massive. It's still as prevalent in Africa now as it ever has been in, in, in history, simply yeah. by the fact that development... And again, by development, it's whatever you interpret that as, as I'm sure Charles has got an idea of what Western development means as well. Um, but, you know, there's the, when I worked in Africa, I, 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 it was a village. It was a everyone lived in mud huts. It was they played the drums every night and danced around a fire, just just like the Tarzan films that I saw when I was a, a child. And when a white man. Uh, in when a white man comes into the village it's like is this guy bringing the diseases with him because mm. they don't understand things like typhoid so there's maybe a typhoid epidemic and there's people dying left right and center they see a white person so basically a ghost it's like in their minds you're you're bringing a disease into the village do we need to chop you up and you know with our machetes and kill you? And and uh, it seems like you had a good guy there that bailed you out, Chas. Yeah, I mean, there was another guy that walked with me for a while in Mozambique. Um, he's an ex-military guy, and he was walking, and he went off in a different direction, and we sort of split up eventually. And he said to me after that he'd been beaten as well. He was dragged along the ground by some villagers, beaten. And they tied him up in a village and um, the police came. So he was lucky because they managed to get the police in. And the police said that they thought he was a vampire. They'd never seen anyone. And, you know, these sort of, like you say, witchcraft. And, and they see people like, you know, white, white guys walking through the village. And they're obviously very suspicious. And they're really unsure what, what we are and why we're there, really. Yeah. My friends in... Uh... My, my fellow workers in Africa got, got um, they had their pickup truck, they call it Shapa, everyone travels on the back of pickup trucks as well, don't they? And they got yeah. pulled over and the villagers were like, what are you doing coming through our village? You're bringing the disease with you. And uh, 
it was quite, quite, you know, you get apprehended by, um, you know, 30 jet black men, you know, Africans with, with machetes and, and there's a, the language barrier and everything. It's a frightening position to, yeah. to frightening position to be in. Did you see, Chaz, there was a documentary. It was a guy doing one of your kind of trips where he was walking some treacherous route. And at one point, he hooked up with another couple of guys. I don't know if it's like an Ed, Ed Stafford type of adventure. Um, but anyway, at one point in the film, he just sits down and he does a piece to camera. And one of the guys had been a bit slow. He'd been lagging back a bit on this, what we call Marie's a yomp, so a, a walk. And uh, the presenter just sits down, does a bit to camera and says, right, you know, John's just died. Um, his body's over there. And the guy had just had a heart attack or whatever. And it was, um, yeah. I don't know. I just think for anyone that's been on expeditions, that kind of rings... You know, you kind of that's that's really relatable. That the, the you know, it's it, it's you've got to be careful out there, haven't you? Yeah, I think that I think that was actually Leverson Wood when he was walking the Nile. He um, had a couple of journalists join him. One of them, one of them was Matt Power, and one of them was uh, Jason uh, Florio. Um, Matt, they were both journalists, and Matt was um, one that died. He had heat stroke. And I think it, it it came on within you know a couple of hours of the beginning of it to him actually dying. And mm. I'm actually quite good friends with Jason. I even speak to Levis as well. I'm quite good friends with Jason. He 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 kayaked the Gambia River and he helped me plan my trek along the Gambia River. So he was telling me about Matt and you know one of his best friends is Matt and uh, how he obviously they joined Leverson and they were only with him for like a week. And uh, Matt unfortunately you know, passed away because of the heat and mm. um, yeah, I mean, I've been walking in these areas and it's 50 degrees Celsius and you start to feel ill, you know, and it's so dangerous and, you know, you, yeah, it's really difficult, really difficult sometimes. Well, big respect to Matt because it's like, I'll, I say this a lot, you know, better to die living your dreams than to, you know, yeah, you know, than than to stay in a stay in a virtual prison at home. But yeah. uh, that heat stroke is an interesting thing. I went. I used to like running in Mozambique a lot, and one day I ran along the beach for about five miles. And it's it's so as you know, it's a different kind of hot there. It's not quite as hot as when I was in sort of Pakistan and in um the, the you know the desert in Arabia, but it was so hot. I think I overheated my core and it yeah. was only, only because I was running alongside the sea, which is quite warm in itself that I, I kind of had my safety net to just go and run in the sea at the end. But this, this horrible overwhelming heat comes over you and you feel like you're boiling your body, don't you? Yeah. I mean, I, I, one of the, you know, I said earlier about having nearly died a couple of times and one of them was due to heat stroke and, when I was walking the Zambezi River, it was an, uh, an area where basically after the Victoria Falls, it drops into a huge 
gorge. This gorge is about 150 miles and it's really steep and rocky. And I was walking down there for a couple of weeks and, and it was so <laughs> slow going that I didn't really have enough food. So I tried to climb out of this gorge. Um, and it, the hottest time of year was when I was walking. The only water was in the river. So when I climbed out of the gorge, I ended up trying to take a shortcut because obviously I couldn't, I was going so slow in the gorge. I tried to take a shortcut. End up getting lost and and sort of going up and down these little hills and really overgrown sort of land. I tried to get back down to the river. I couldn't I was faced with a cliff and I couldn't get back down. And and by this point I'd run out of water and it was 50 degrees and I ended up trying to find shade, trying to get helicopters to rescue me on my satellite phone. I I couldn't get any of that and um, I ended up drinking my own piss, you know, drinking my own urine and uh, I ended up. I sat there, you know, contemplating, am I going to live? Am I going to die? And in the end, I was just drinking my urine and I went back to this cliff and that's the time I fell down a cliff as well. I sort of pretty much jumped and grabbed onto rocks and roots outside of the cliff. And I pretty much thought to myself, I'm going to die. I might as well die just trying to get down this cliff instead of sat, you know, in my own sort of heat stroke phase and I ended up getting back down to the river and jumping in the river and drinking about five litres of water in about 10 minutes and uh, but luckily I, I didn't die but you know it was um, really really scary stuff really sort of overwhelmed you know that, that day was a massive wake up as far as expeditions and you know danger really. Hey that should be on everyone's bucket list save your life by drinking your own urine yeah sod the bloody skydiving the the, the 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 tandem skydiving drink your own urine folks yeah that's good for you were you not worried about getting giardia from drinking from the river or was that uh, i mean obviously it, you had to save your life but i had um i was drinking from the river the whole time really and I, I, what i'd use is a water to go bottle which is a filtered bottle which you know you can filter out any harmful chemicals, bacteria, parasites in the water. And I was using that, but I think after that episode, because the Zambezi, the, after the gorges, it's really fast flowing rapid. So luckily, you know, I think that area is quite safe to drink as far as drinking African river water. But yeah, I, I just didn't really, at that point, I didn't really care about anything except for getting water in my system. You know, I was drinking my own wee and stuff like that. And as soon as I got down to that river, I just needed to get that water in my body as quickly as possible. And I didn't really think about filtering or anything. I think I would just like drink, get it in. And I had to sit in the river and cool down for about an hour before I could really focus. And yeah, it's thought about survival and trying to do it as quickly as possible, really. I bet. So let's talk about some of the sort of practicalities. What, what, di- what distances? You've walked two rivers now, is that right? Three, uh, three rivers. So Zambezi, Zambezi River, the Gambia River, and uh, Madagascar's longest, the Mangroki River. Wow! It not 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 trying to sound like boy's own or anything, but is that any kind of world record attempts or anything? Well, the the Gambia is. I was the first person in history to walk the length of the Gambia River. That there's no one else I know of in you know known history that's done that. And, the Mangoki, the same. We were the a team of people, the only people we know that have ever walked the length of the Mangoki. And the Zambezi, there's another guy, but the other guy uh, he didn't do all of it. That, you know, I probably shouldn't say that, but there were sections he missed off, and he's labelled as being the first person. But I know I walked the whole river, so 
maybe I am the first person to walk that river, but yeah. Wow. So I'm just going to write, so the Zambezi. Zambezi. Yeah. Uh, the Gambia. Gambia. And the Mangoki. Mangoki. I want to Google that when I finish speaking to you. Yeah, Go I mean, the, the Mangoki River is Madagascar's longest, but that expedition, we actually, me and the team walked across Madagascar as well from coast to coast. So it was a like a two-in-one expedition, really walking you know east to west and and following the longest river in the in the country the world first and zambezi is obviously it is is in zam it, it's in six different countries it you know it's two thousand miles long it goes through zambia angola wow. mozambique just looking at my my map up here yeah it's, gosh yes i i can see it's the the rivers on the map Big old river. Yeah, I can see that one now. It goes down into Zimbabwe, is that right? It sort of borders Zambia and Zimbabwe for quite a long time. Yeah, ah, okay, yeah, I can see it. Into Mozambique, yeah. Yeah, finishes in Mozambique. So let's talk about some practicalities then, Chaz. What are, you're obviously um, staying, un, staying out at night, so is that under canvas or bivy bag or...? Uh, a tent. I carry a tent with me on my expeditions. You know, I'll carry a, yeah, because because you need a tent really, obviously for mosquitoes and things like that, snakes, any scorpions, anything that might get into your tent, I, anything into a bivy. I like to be in a tent, really, so I know I'm out of the way of anything like that. But a lot of countries I've been to it hasn't always been safe to sort of camp, and I've stayed in schools and villages and, and places you know along the way where villagers will let me sleep in certain areas and things like that but yeah i mean most for the most part if i'm walking i've got all my camping equipment in my bag and i'll camp out in the bush and uh, live off oh. the land as much as possible so let's talk through that equipment because um when i ran the length of the length of britain in 2018 i i Spent a fair bit of money trying to get the lightest weight kit that I could because obviously I was having to carry everything. Um, it's quite, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, and it, yeah, I mean, I spent an awful lot on a very lightweight tent. I mean, it weighs something ridiculous, probably less than a kilo, maybe even 600 grams or something, right? Yeah. Uh, wasn't without its problems, you know, which is like all, all bits of kit. It's all kind of experimental, isn't it, really, when you're going into a theatre you've never been in before. Um, yeah. For example, could you lift the flaps up on both sides of your tent so that the air blows through? Uh, well, I've had different tents on different expeditions, and, and the, similar to yourself, I had it was a Terranova Zephyrus one light or something like that and that one is it Zephyrus? oh no laser photon a laser photon so it's about 600 grams and that one just opened up on the one side um but it was really small sort of compact tent and that actually broke on the gambia river walk and i had mosquitoes coming in the tent and it was a horrible night but then um the last one i used in madagascar and probably what i'll continue to use now is uh, an MSR Hubba Hubba, which is open on both sides and it's freestanding and you can sit up in it and things. It's a lot bigger. So it might sound, might sound silly to people listening, but if you can't get the air to blow through at night, you're 
you're you're sleeping in an oven and just having that breeze yeah. across you makes all the difference in your in your recuperation and your, your rest so the old malaria is an interesting one uh, it got people in Mozambique that I work with really bad but I noticed not saying there's any science behind this the people that seem to be unfit and didn't look after their bodies seem to get it really bad because it's rated on a star rating, isn't it? So bad malaria is five star. Malaria, just a bit of a cold. You, so you've got a few parasites in you. Is That's one star, right? Allegedly, I had the malaria, but I, I couldn't feel it. I, I, I had the test and he said, you got one star malaria, right? Um, I never took any of the prophylactics, so the, the prevention medicine. We, um, and I, we had that uh, larium, which can cause you mental health or, or psychological issues. Yeah. Um, in fact, there were people had to leave the Marines after going to the jungle because the larium, right. uh, I think it gave them epilepsy. So, I, I might be wrong. Sorry, larium, if you're watching, but it's it, it caused a... A quite a serious problem when I was when I was in Mosemate I, I just didn't take it I was it, it can make you a bit depressed and I no. I felt a bit depressed when I was there and I thought right I, I'm gonna bin that medication so I never took any for six months I actually met a South African guy who was one of these old-timer South Africans he'd done everything the gold mining the diamond prospecting the all this kind of thing he was part of the woodwork and he was like, his approach was, well, a whole, the whole continent in Africa can't take malaria medicine all the time. A, they can't afford it. B, imagine the effect it has on your body after a lifetime of taking that, right? He said, yeah. I don't take it. I just take the cure. And so, so that's what I did. I just took the cure, i.e. the prophylactic, which is supposed to prevent it, is also yeah. the cure. Um, but then again cerebral malaria is different from body malaria isn't it yeah i mean i'm not 100 sure that the differences are obviously the ones maybe for the body and the brain isn't it different? but i've always taken doxycycline which is an anti-malarial obviously it makes you sensitive to the sunlight but it's always been i've always been okay with that but similar to yourself with i think malarone and things like that it always sends me a bit depressed and affects my mind a little bit so i don't take them and some I, I met a lot of people that do just take the cure instead of the preventatives but i think i've always just been because i know i'm in an area where i can't always get help and i'm always really keen to get as many preventative methods as possible you know like the clothing i wear the, the sort of medication the sort of also take some the, kind of cure the, and the thing was for us Chaz, all the people that got the malaria they were all taking the the preventative stuff and I, those of us that the two of us that didn't take it um you yeah. know I'm not, I'm not making any sort of suggestions here do do your own research but like i say i didn't take it and i didn't i don't think i got malaria but they did say i had one star it really did knock some of the people for six though um yeah but yeah, yeah. what cooker are you using then uh on my expeditions the the river walks i've taken just a transit pot 
and cook on fires because there's no way of getting fuel. There's no way of really carrying too much. So I'll take a little transier part with a handle and I'll just make a fire at night and I'll cook on the fire. That's pretty much all I do really. Um, nice. Yeah. In the so UK, I like the jet boil and things. But. Is that like your three pots, your three pans with your gripper handle? Yeah, I mean, you can get you get like a set, don't you? But I just take one pot, you know, one sort of smallish pot, which is enough to, you know, put rice or pasta and things in it, and that, and I'll, I'll cook over the fire and then just wash that. And that's also my bowl, my you know, everything. I put, that's just what I use one one bowl, and uh, yeah, that serves all purposes I need really. Even if I can't get, you know, to the river and have a wash, I can sometimes fill that. And just, wash my face and things and it's got multi-use to it and it was light you know really light and sort of titanium pots i think they're made of and yeah pretty good and um do you use any sort of sleeping bag or just just a sort of sleeping bag liner uh depends on you know sometimes obviously in, in different countries it can get quite cool at night in, in the bush in africa and the zambezi and sub-saharan regions they do have a bit of a winter where it gets cold at night so i'll, I'll take like a free Free season sleeping bag for the most part, which compacts down quite small. And uh, but if I'm going to a country, I know it's going to be there summer. It's going to be hot. I'll just take a two season sleeping bag, or a, even a sleeping bag liner sometimes, just to just to cover yourself and uh, get a bit of comfort at night. Really. Yeah, I bought. I got a ma- mammoth um, three season, and it's folds down to about that big it again it weighs something silly like about 400 grams or yeah i think mama bought out a jung have you heard of a jungilak no oh a jungilak was a wicked i think it's a norwegian brand might might be swedish but i think it was norwegian and those guys up there they know how to make kit yeah yeah they're living in them environments aren't they yeah they do they they and they they used to not not they're used to not doing things sort of half-heartedly there. It's, it's, if they're going to make a car, they make a really good car. If yeah. they make equipment, it's the same. Yeah. Uh, machete, do you travel with a machete? Uh, no, no, no. I think, obviously, it's difficult to take them on a plane and things like that. And uh, Yeah, I, I've never really used one, to be honest. I don't, the areas I walk in, you know, they can be overgrown, but for the most part, I'll... I have a walk around them overgrown parts or so I'll find a sort of path the villagers would use. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, 90% of the time I don't really think I need one, but there is always times where if you're walking through quite overgrown areas that it would, it would come in handy, but yeah. I've I spent no quite a bit of time in the jungle and all, also, like I say, the dangers in South America me personally, I always want to always want to have a machete on me, you know. But yeah. I just stick it in my um, in my luggage. That's um, okay. yeah, that's fine. They don't anything in your big bag is fine. It's only your handbags, you know, your hand, hand luggage. Yeah. You can't take sharp objects, uh, really. But again, in the jungle, you know, you want to obviously have a machete. There's a. They always say if there's yeah. one bit of equipment you want for survival, it's it's a machete. Everything else you can, you know, fashion from the from the machete. So, yeah. uh, any particular kind of backpack you have, or is um, I use I mainly use low alpine sort of um, 
air zone bags. They're like a 35 litre, 40 litre. Mm. I don't use more than 40 litre really. It gets, you know, obviously the more you spend, the more uh, small the equipment's going to be, you know, lighter it's going to be. And I do spend quite a lot on my expedition gear because I want to be walking comfortably and I want to make sure, you know, I can, I can do the walk and be comfortable really. So I do spend quite a lot of money on equipment and, you know, low alpine bags. I've got the air zone backpack and they're normally pretty good mm. they're big enough to put everything you need into it as well i've done nearly all of my traveling with a low alpine rucksack yeah when i ran when i ran the uh, thousand miles i i just i bought a second hand one on ebay identical and i just chopped it all down i chopped all the stuff off it that i didn't need even you know you can get two rods that run down the back to, to stiffen yeah. your backpack I put those on my um, my bandsaw in the garage, and I just sawed one in half, and I just used a thin bit either side, just to again right. up half the weight of that. Yeah, good good bags they are. They got a really nice high. The shoulders are uh, quite away above the waist belt, so you can get a nice comfy balance between your hips yeah. and your and your thing, which for load carrying is incredibly important. They are comfortable. Yeah, I think that the longer you obviously do expeditions, that you try different bags, different kit, and when you find something that really works for you, I guess it's, it's what you need to stick with. And the low alpine air zone bags I've always used, especially for the last three expeditions, that I know they're going to be reliable. I know they're not going to give me any problems, and I know it's going to fit everything I need to. So, yeah, they're good. I'm dying to ask you, foot footwear. Footwear, um, similar to sort of the bag as far as, you know, getting experience of using different footwear. and and um, giving you problems, etc. And the Merrells I've used, um, I think the last expedition I did of walking across Madagascar, I had Merrell chameleons, I think they were called, they were like the waterproof version of the, the Merrell Mobes, is it? Yeah, Merrell Mobes, like the breathable walking shoes. I think in Africa, you only need a, a walking shoe, really, because you're going to be, you know, bushland most of the time. And uh, I used Merrell Mobes, which aren't waterproof, but they're really breathable and they were really comfortable. He's there in, on the Zambezi and the Gambia. And I used uh, Merrill Chameleons on the Madagascar trek. And I think there was me and a friend walking the Gambia River and he had loads of foot problems. I can't remember what he was using. I didn't have any. And the Madagascar trek, the same. I was the only person that didn't have any foot problems. And that was me using the Merrill shoes I, I had. Mm. I've done a lot of my, my stuff, my traveling and, um, with just Tiva sandals in the in the hot countries. Right. Um, the only problem I ran into with them is I got that. What's that little mite called that burrows into your skin? It's really painful, and it. it yeah. Do you know I the one I mean? I know what you mean. Yeah, Ed Stafford had one in his head, didn't he? I can't remember what the. No, was. that that's a bot fly, right? All oh, right. Okay. That's the fly. It lays an egg in in a cut on your head. And that yeah. develops into a huge maggot and it has spikes on it like that. So when you try and pull it out, the spikes sticking into your skin and um, there's a certain way to get them. I think you cover them with Vaseline and cause they can't breathe. They then have to come to the surface, but Ooh, they, right. they, they're not nice. No, there's one. Um, oh, the name of it slips my mind. You can chigger, chigger. Chigger. Yeah. A chigger is the size of a piece of dust. It's that small. Right. 
and it bites into your skin and then you develop a little blister underneath it but the, the chigger stays there in a little black spot and within no time at all it's this intense horrible pain and you've got to get a knife and you've got to cut them right out i it, 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 i don't know exactly yeah you've just got to cut them out and if anyone watching if you go on youtube and look up chiggers there's actual footage on there of doctors that have gone to villages in africa where the people are just infested with them like their whole skin is well it's, it looks like you've got um some like smallpox or something it's that the, the the skin becomes so bad and the doctors painstakingly cut these things out one by one with a scalpel and we're talking thousands sometimes thousands of the things no. but yeah i got those wearing i got those in central america i think it was in um uh guatemala i think it was yeah that was one time I wish I probably had um, trekking shoes on or something. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, never heard of them. Yeah, they're not not recommended. You know. Mm. Um, so yeah, and what else? Practicalities. What what is there any any kit that is vitally important to you? Um, I take a satellite phone. I think most of the time I'm pretty much in the middle of nowhere on my own as well. So. I don't have any kind of support vehicles, any kind of support team, and having a satellite phone is is something that obviously can save my skin if I need to. Mm. Yeah. Have you heard of Satcase? No, no. I use an InReach, Garmin InReach, which is just a messenger, but it's it's quite cheap and light, and it's it's quite reliable. So. Okay, I'm going to write that down and have a look at that. Yeah, my friend Baz Gray, a former Royal Marine Sergeant Major. Um, he's uh, skied to the South Pole last year and he's a, he's um, an ambassador, I suppose you'd say for a company called Satcase. Okay. And it's a, it's a black case. You open it, put your mobile phone in, close it, and then it becomes a satellite phone. Very good. Um, yeah. I don't know which, which of the kind of internet functions you can use. If if any, I, I think I think I believe you can, but yeah, it just it's just your phone functions as a sat phone then. So, mm -hmm. um, sat case, if you're watching and you're looking to sponsor a podcast, I'm your man. <laughs> yeah, I love one as well. Yeah, they're good. Um, Two thousand miles. What sort of mileage are you are you doing a day? On the Zambezi, I think I averaged. Um, is it 20 miles a day? No, maybe not that much. Yeah, I mean, you know, some days I walked 30 miles, some days I walked 10 miles, sometimes I walked two miles, depending on the terrain, really. And, um, yeah, depending on the terrain. And, uh, sorry, my Zoom was paying that. Yeah, it's depending on the terrain, really. And um, if I'm walking, like in the gorges, for example, I was walking on really sort of, sort of, bouldery areas and then I was walking in swamps sometimes and then I was walking through sometimes there'd be dirt tracks which I could do you know 30 mile a day on and just just depends really I think average about probably about 20 mile a day maybe or a bit less how, how much does your kit come to in total weight then 
Um, I think I try and keep it around 10 to 12 kilograms, ideally, if I'm doing a long journey and I know I want to be comfortable. Yeah. 10 to 12 kilograms, really. Yeah, that's manageable. Yeah. Mm. Um, and what kind of um, navigation? Uh, in Africa, you know, along the rivers, I, for the most part, I'm following the rivers. So I've got a sort of natural navigational path, but I'll carry a road map, which doesn't really give me much detail, but it gives me a rough idea of, you know, distances between each town and things like that. And I'll rely on local people and also my mobile phone. I'll have maybe a couple of apps like Guru Maps and different map, mapping apps on my phone, which I'll use if I want more finer detail about where I am exactly. Um, but a lot of the time it's just following the river, relying on local knowledge and uh, using the paper map. So in, I've got a point to aim at, if you know what I mean, maybe this town is where I want to be in three days. And I say to the villagers, which, which way am I going to go to get to this town? And, you know, following the river, you're always going to get um, quite a clear path as far as um, where you need to be and stuff like that as well. Mm. And Chaz, what's... Um how do you feel being out there on your, I mean, bloody hell, you're in a, not necessarily always a risky situation, but like you said, there's, there's no one's going to come running to help you if you need it. Yeah. Um, how does that balance against the kind of feeling of being at one with nature and, and living your dream? And, and I'm, I'm guessing you like your own company, obviously. Yeah, I think there's, there's definitely a mixture of feelings as far as sometimes I know I'm in an area where it's really dangerous, you know, maybe there's a lot of wildlife in the area or there's, there's potential, you know, like, like you were saying before, there's a lot of areas I walked through where I knew there was a lot of witchcraft practice in that area. I knew there was a potential danger from people and sometimes I'd be walking on the, the edges of national parks and I'd see elephants, there'd be lions, there'd be buffaloes and I knew that, you know, I'm on my own. Uh, if anything happens, I'm in a lot of trouble, really. And them points, and when I'm going through them sort of areas, I'm always on edge a little bit. But then when I'm just walking in a, in a sort of normal environment, I'm quite happy and content just, just being on my own and just walking. And uh, But it's a mixture, you know. You have to, doing an expedition to that calibre, you have to really put yourself in, a, in the right mindset to handle anything that's thrown at you. and um, and the Zambezi River, that was just, had to be the case all the time. Mm. I was either getting um, problems with people, animals, the environment, the heat, the, the terrain. You know, there was always something I had to sort of really be strong-minded for to get through um, that time, really. Are you doing research with fellow explorers? So from the Geographical Society, are there, are there other guys? I mean, there are obviously other people that have walked rivers because we've seen on television haven't we or we've seen documentaries yeah yeah um, i mean I, I try and i try and use multiple sources of, of, of research you know I'll, I'll first of all i'll probably research has anyone done this walk before is there any information they've got online that i can use and, and get gather information i think i managed to talk to leverson wood um he'd walked the nile about his adventure and he gave me a lot of information and advice on, on walking African rivers and obviously planned the Zambezi, quite a similar trek really, but on a smaller scale. 
Um, but he he gave me a lot of advice, and I spoke to other people that walked. I spoke to David Lemon, who walked the Zambezi before, and uh, get, got information from him about his experience. And I spoke to people that kayak the river. I spoke to yeah, I spoke to several, but I also read you know, information on, on on the river and the, the, the different towns, the you know the different cultures, there's different sort of potential problems I might encounter and. I do, yeah, I did a lot. I think it took about two years to, to research the Zambezi and to, to actually get get myself doing it, if you know what I mean. Wow. Because, I mean, the kayak in the rivers, that's inherent with danger in itself, isn't it? Yeah. It's a completely different sort of thing to walk in the river, but they, they've obviously gone through the same places. And I'm quite jealous sometimes when I see people on a boat that are just storming past and then there's me walking through the swamps on the outskirts of the river and, you know, there is definitely uh, swings and roundabouts with, with these different modes of transport, really. Yeah, a friend of mine um, and I were cycling through the Baltic, so Estonia, Latvia, uh, what else are we talking up there? Lithuania, isn't it? Mm. And um, and we stopped in the in the forest for a few nights. And we built a raft, um, a proper big, proper big, well, it had to be a big raft because it needed two adults on it and both our bicycles and our ruck, and our ruck you know, all our panniers and equipment. And uh, we sailed down the river for three days on this, living on this raft. Absolutely brilliant. But, um, mm. Every now and again, a kayaker would just come, <laughs> just come back, come fl- yeah. flying past us, living a high life. Yeah, that was fun. Um, so, I guess the question on everybody's mind is, what wildlife have you seen, and and, mm. and how come you haven't been eaten? I've been quite lucky, I guess. I've, I've I've been charged by elephants before. I've had lions sleeping outside my tent on the. On the actual Gambia River trek, the, one of the main reasons why no one's ever walked it is in the middle of Senegal, there's a huge lion park, which we had to walk through, which is, you know, there's a, the Gambia River goes straight through it. And uh, we had to get guides permits to walk through that area. And there was lions, you know, lions everywhere. And these guides obviously were sort of leading the way. And um, that was really sort of dangerous and risky. But uh, Zambezi had lion prints outside my tent and they, they were there you know they were there all the while and it was there was one episode where i was walking along a track on the edge of a national park and i could see elephant dung and tracks everywhere and to the left to the left of me i heard all this crashing of trees just collapsing to the side of me and I, a big, big bull elephant was storming towards me um obviously coming towards me quite a fast pace and Luckily, to my right-hand side, there was a bit of a dip in the lands. So I jumped down there and climbed up the other side. And luckily, the elephant didn't go beyond that point and was just sort of looking at me and I was backing off sort of thing. But really sort of, yeah, really sort of close encounters of snakes, you know, numerous amounts of snakes and how many, black mambas. And, yeah, I was going to say, how many black mambas have you seen? Well, I've only think I've seen one that I know was a black mamba. That was when I was walking through a really overgrown forested area, and um, I was sort of following a little, small little trail, and 
as I was sort of going amongst the trees, I heard all this rustling to the side of me and this snake sort of stood up um, next to me and it was a black mamba. And yeah, uh, yeah. luckily this snake just went, it just bolted off the other direction and uh, my heart was in my mouth sort of thing. And um, obviously if I'd have been bitten, I'd have probably been dead within however many minutes or how long it takes. But it's, um, yeah, really sort of close encounters, really. They, they rear up like cobras, don't they? And they can really go very fast. I saw a two in two in Mozambique. One of them just come right through, right past where I was sitting in our outside our accommodation. It, it just went right past in front. Another one, I was walking down a track. It came out into the middle of the track and it put its head right up about a foot, a foot and a half, looked around. And then it seemed to like move like the Loch Ness monster across across the path. Yeah. One night, my friend came running into our uh, room. I shared my I shared my room with a Hungarian chap, Jolt. Jolt come running in. Chris, come quick! We went outside. Um, we took a cat, and we use candlelight a lot because obviously electricity goes off, and there's not a lot of it in Africa anyway. But or in, in certain parts of Africa, I should say. I mean, we took a candle outside and there's a puff adder right outside our door. Mm. The reason they're so dangerous is they don't, they don't get out of the way. They just stay there. And yeah. many Africans stand on them, don't they, and, lo and lose a leg. Yeah, they're really camouflaged and they'll just sit there and yeah, tracks and things. Yeah, mm. gosh. So, um... And the bull elephant, you you say ever so calmly, but that must have been, you know, that's frightening. Yeah. That was, yeah, it was a big moment, really, because I've been walking and, and I was, I've been over three months of trekking on the Zambezi at that point. I was really exhausted. I lost a lot of weight. And I was walking towards the gates of the National Park, the Lower Zambezi National Park. And um, when, when it happens, you know, I wasn't far away from actually reaching a place I was trying to get to. And, um, my heart was in my mouth and my legs were like jelly and I just felt so exhausted and, and just, I didn't know, you know, I was just like, what the hell? It's just, but I'm trying to walk the Zambezi river here and I know that anything that happens, I can't really sort of get frustrated with because I know that these, it's a dangerous, dangerous thing to try and do. And, but yeah, I think I put myself in that mode where I don't get too sort of worked up and I don't get really too scared or even though I know it's a really dangerous thing that just happened, I'll, I'll sort of play it down a little bit in my mind because I know that um, it was my own decision and um, I didn't really get injured by it. And I, I love animals. You know, the, one of the reasons I walk these rivers is to raise awareness for wildlife and things like that. And, I always like to think there's some kind of moment between me and that animal at that time. And mm. he's a huge creature, you know, and he didn't attack me and he didn't, um, you know, he didn't go any further. And I had to respect the elephant for not doing that. And in my mind, you know, I, I play, I sort of don't play it as a being a really scary thing because, you know, part of me is like, you know, nothing happened, but it could have happened. And it was just, it's a good story. It's obviously saying now that, these animals aren't, you know, they're wild and, and they are dangerous. And the fact that he did stop and, and respect that he wasn't going to kill me, I, I was thankful for. And it's that old bit of a cliche, isn't it? But the most dangerous animal is a mosquito. And 
you know, yeah. that's the one that people just generally don't tend to be afraid of. And um, like what about our friend the crocodile? Have you seen many of those on your on your river trips? Yeah, a lot of crocodiles. You know, walking along Lake Corabasa in Mozambique, um, there's not as many people as so the crocodiles would come and rest on the shore quite often. And every time I turn the corner, there'd be a huge crocodile on the banks. And every time I reached the river, I had to drink from the river, so I'd have to always approach cautiously. And um, yeah. I've seen a lot of crocodiles, but they've always, once again, they've always just kept themselves to themselves. And when we were walking across Madagascar, we had to walk through a lot of rivers every day. We'd be walk to our neck in river river water, wading through rivers. And uh, there was a lot of crocodiles in Madagascar as well. And that was something that was really sort of overwhelming that we had to do that and potential risk of, of crocodiles obviously eating us and stuff. But Wow. During that whole expedition, we only saw one crocodile. And luckily, it wasn't when we were walking to the river. I'll tell you a funny thing, Chaz. When, when I worked in Mozambique, the nearest um, town was called Nakala. Uh, and that was, um, it was about, I don't know, let's just say five miles, so about eight kilometers from the village that where I worked. And in like I say, it's all in its heyday would have been colonial spent colonial splendor. And now it's all gone to rack and rack and ruin of obviously through all, all the, all the war, the nonstop war. Hmm. Well, in the middle of that town, in the town center, there's a caged area. Um, can't really describe might even be, might be bars actually in there. And it looks like some colonial, it looked like the colonists built it back in the heyday is what I'm trying to say. And when you go up to the bars and look in, there's a crocodile in the middle of the town. And this brute, if I can call it that, is about oh, 12, 15 feet long. Huge. Wow. Just like the ones you see in the, tar the, the old Tarzan films, right? Mm. And I guess what it is, is back in the day, it was kind of a feature um, for the, you know, Portuguese had caught it in a river somewhere and put it in there as a feature in the middle of the town. And of course, yeah. of course, it's been there ever since. And I guess they live to a ripe old age. Poor thing, and, eh? And yeah, and the... the I mean, it was a poor thing. It was horrible. It's one of those situations where the crocodile rescue man needs to go and get that thing out there and give it some yeah. dignity because the, the locals would just get dogs and throw them over and, you know, feed it, feed it stray dogs and stuff. And, mm. and it was full of like, it's, it's, I guess it was a swimming pool back in the day for this thing, right? It's all just now full up with litter and, dead dog carcasses and stuff. It was pretty, um, yeah, pretty vile, really. Um, do you drink any alcohol when you're doing your travels? Is that, do you have a hip uh, flask or is it something you can leave behind? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really drink very often anyway, just in general, but I think um, if I finish an expedition, I sometimes have like a couple of beers at the end, but yeah, well, I think when I'm on the expedition, I'm very focused on what's going on and, and, and the actual expedition itself. And 
are probably a little bit boring in someone in some people's eyes as far as you know I'll just I'll just do the expedition and I'll happily just do it in a natural manner and there's not really many opportunities to get alcohol as well some of the areas I've walked and the local villagers would drink whatever juice they can cooked concoct um, uh, you know in their in their houses and things and palm beer palm, palm beer and palm wine and palm whiskey uh, yeah, so I, I don't, you know, I, when I'm back home, I'll have a few drinks and things. But yeah, on expedition, I tend to not tend not to really. Mm. And I wanted to talk about food because if you're coming from villages to villages, what? The, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing there's not too many shops around. I, no, I know they I mean, have they have little tie, is it tiendas they call them like little stalls outside. Yeah, they have little, sometimes little shops, little stalls, and I'll um, yeah, I'll carry what I need. Basically, I'll carry like spaghetti, rice, oats, like powdered, you know, sort of really sort of dry goods, and then whatever I find in the villages, maybe some vegetables or some fish and things like that. I mix that with whatever food I've got. But to be honest, most of the time, if I'm passing through villages, there is some kind of where the villagers will feed you and. They have fed me. I never expected them to, you know, I never really relied on villagers to feed me. But, you know, the cultures, some of the cultures along African rivers is you're seen as a guest and they will look after you, you know, they'll feed you and welcome you in. And I'll always leave a bit of money for them, you know, because they've given me what they've got and they've not got much themselves. So, yeah, for the most part, the villagers would feed me, but I'd have food in my bag if I needed it as well. Mm. Yeah, but there is there is little shops and little shops that sell basics the, the, the thing is though and you must have experienced this so much the hospitality in these parts for people that have nothing i mean they live in absolute abject poverty the kids toys in mozambique was rubbish they yeah. their footballs were made out of shopping bags wrapped around each other like hundreds of times that's their football um if they got some they if you threw if you had a bottle of water you get three kids watching you because they want that they want that bottle it's yeah. it's a commodity right um so when you're there and they come out they bring you into their hut they give you their bed which is you know sometimes quite an interesting arrangement and of course they go and get their chicken or their best chicken um, which is, you know, that, that's like us going and getting one of our cars or our, our motorbike and giving it to a complete street. I mean, it's a big, valuable, very valuable yeah. part of their life. And they willingly will sacrifice, you know, not sacrifice, they'll, the chicken gets its neck snapped, basically, and they cook it up for you, don't they? Yeah, I mean, that's always one of the things I speak about a lot is when people speak about going through the villages and how much hospitality you receive. and. But there is a huge contrast, you know, I went from villages where I'd just be overwhelmed by the way I was treated and there'd always be an element of shock, especially if they'd never seen a white person in their village, they'd be shocked and sort of overwhelmed and eventually that would calm down, it'd be excitement and joy that they've got a visitor in the village. And But then sometimes, like I say about Mozambique and places that I was just seen as someone that they didn't want in the village and danger and, and sort of a witch or, you know, some kind of demon in the village and different it was always depend you know every time i reached the village i'd be going from my head how am i gonna 
how are they going to receive me? You know, is it going to be safe? Is it going to be dangerous? Are they going to be welcoming? Are they going to be scared? Are they going to be... But yeah, I mean, they've got nothing. Um, I think one of the things that frustrates me about the UK or a lot of the world is that how much we think we need and, and how greedy we can be, you know, as, as human beings. And you go over there and they've just made, a, say, a lot of football and that's it. All the kids are entertained. And if they got, if, if for example, you gave them a sweet or a biscuit, they're going to share it around every single child in that area. In the UK, they quite happily just shove it in their mouth and, and not yeah. mention it. You know, it's just... Perhaps I could make a point there, um, and it's about Islam. And I've seen some, you know, you, there's obviously good and bad in every, every kind of facet of life. Yeah. But because it, Islam comes predominantly from a desert-dwelling population, a lot of it is based on selflessness which goes back to the days where if you're in the travel in the desert, there's not a lot of resources available. So when you saw a stranger, you you'd welcome them into your home and you'd give them half of you, you'd feed them. And the theory is when they, you know, when you then pass through another stranger's territory, they're going to look after you. It's a really nice thing. Yeah. And another aspect of Islam, it, it, um, or being a Muslim is you don't play with food and i really love that you know i try i teach my son that you know you'll see a lot of western television programs where they they're physically wasting food just to get a cheap laugh you know a cheap two minute laugh on the television set i mean i'm not i don't mean chucking a pie in someone's face but you know this kind of this this just immense ignorant waste not realizing that there's children where you and I have been that are starving to death that would would give anything for that that waste um, yeah. the the throwing the stuff in the fridge away I mean it's get a life folks smell it if it smells okay you can eat it don't don't go by the sell by date if it smells okay you're gonna be fine you know not chicken obviously fish yeah, yeah. And things you got to be careful with hence why that's why shellfish is um part of part of islamic culture isn't it you don't eat shellfish i think and that comes from the the days where if you try to take it into the desert it would really get poisonous very quickly but yeah it's uh that kind of thing where you travel around the world and you take some really nice you bring some really nice um philosophies home with you yeah, it does open your mind. I think travel in general, it's just anyone that travels, even if you go away for a couple of few weeks, you know, it broadens your mind. The more you travel, the more sort of open you are to different cultures, beliefs, uh, ways of life. And to be honest, the negative side of it is the more you come back, the more you see that people aren't open-minded and aren't really, can be a bit selfish and self-centered and and we haven't got the cultures that we probably did have at one point and they've died out and, and these places you've just been to and you've seen how welcoming they are and how humble and kind they can be and coming back to sort of, you know, not even people not even saying hello to you on a bus or something. You know, it's just, it's quite demoralizing sometimes. But Not just a bus, mate. In England, your bloody neighbor doesn't even, you know, your neighbor doesn't, it's not just they don't say hello to you, is they try and avoid you coming out of the house. This is, this is how yeah. corrupt our, 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 our 
minds have become by our culture and and it's um it's undoubtedly this is the thing travel broadens the mind it can narrow the, your mind in some ways but you go to these cultures that have nothing and they have the biggest sense of community that the biggest sense of looking after their family if a child's parents die it's got extended family it doesn't have to go through some foster or adoption thing that that's put in children's home and gets its brain screwed up for life it's that woman there is his auntie that woman if you go in a village in africa with one of the children you say who's that oh that's my auntie oh okay so and the next one oh who's that oh that's my auntie all right um, this one um that's my auntie so you've got a lot of aunties no what it is is every woman in the village it has a duty to look after that child and it's beautiful beautiful part of culture you know Mm. and take our way of life all these gizmos and gadgets that just corrupt the mind and destroy young people's futures and their thinking and and their their visions and 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 their you know stifles their achievement by by just corrupt yeah corrupting their dreams we, you can see where we, we're going wrong, can't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, I, I can talk a lot about this sort of stuff as far as, um, I, I like to try and stay positive, but I think when you sort of see how greedy we are and how, you know, brainwashed, I think, as well, as far as people thinking they need more than they actually do, and, and then the more you have, the more you want, the more you sort of protect what you've got the more so I think me living a van life and just a simple life is my way of sort of rebelling against having too much and, and not needing too much if you know what I mean just I'm happy as long as, long as I've got the things I need and, and the simple life I want to live then I don't think I'll ever really want to change that and um, I think you see people all around that, that have just got more and they want more and even just like maybe you know little things like uh, the sofa's a couple of years old. They want the new range. It's, it's fine, you know. It's just, you know, no, no, I want this. No. Well, the, the, the other thing, Chaz, that you must appreciate that I certainly do, I travelled the, I've travelled the world. And if you were to work my budget out, I spend less than $2.50 a day. So about, what, £1.75. I've done skydiving, still within that budget advanced mm. advanced scuba diving courses i've yeah. i've been to every single country i wanted to go to every yeah. single one and like i say it's it's that cheap but you still need that money to go traveling and if yeah. you, if people could understand how much how much um happiness and fulfillment living your dreams brings you as opposed to buying stuff which is a very short-lived high you know six months after buying a new car it's not new anymore the next models already you start you know or a year later or two where you start to see the newer model on the road it's it's very and i just would encourage anyone listen to save your money save your money and spend it on your dreams don't be tempted into taking out the car loan that you're going to pay 495 quid a month for for the next you know 10 years or something just use it for your dreams for your hobbies your adventures your 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 traveling 
what's it like when you you've done this trip it's 2000 miles say and you see the ocean i'm i'm guessing this is a scenario you must have seen yeah i mean it, it's it's always a strange day i think you know obviously towards the end of an expedition you you're craving to see the ocean you're craving to sort of get to the end destination and then um when you see it there's a mixture of wow you know obviously i've reached it and i've completed this journey but then also what now you know like you, you sort of stop and you think the you know all, all i was saying about when you leave everything back home it's gone and you get a bit of a realization when you've reached the ocean but now you're going back to the stuff that you hadn't had to have to worry about for the past whatever months and i don't know it's a weird it's a weird feeling it's really hard to describe to be honest that you're on a high and a bit of a low at the same time and mixed of emotions and you want to go and relax but you also want to take the moment in and um, it's not always an easy thing to do get to the ocean because on the zambezi i had to i got you know logged it was mangroves and then as soon as i got to the end it was i was getting the tide was coming in i was getting trapped on the beach and then i was like, ah, trying to wave fishermen down it's not always um, the romantic ending you think of and the Gambia and the, Ma the Madagascar trip was a bit different. We finished on nice coastal areas. And, uh, I'm guessing, Chaz, there's, there's bull sharks in that area as well, aren't there? There can be bull sharks in the, yeah, uh, there's Zambezi as they go up from the, the Indian Ocean, yeah, up to the, up the river, that first stretch of the river, really, by the mouth. But um, I don't know. I had to wade through some, some water when I was getting trapped in. And um, I think you always, there's always a risk of, coming across these things you know mm. and have you done anything in the sort of um scandinavia or the alpine region any sort of cold cold weather stuff um i did an expedition where i walked and hitchhiked to the northernmost point of europe which is um nordcap um so basically from the uk um i had a hundred pound budget i got a 9.99 flight to oslo and I walked and hitchhiked to the northernmost point um, to film and admire the northern lights up a few years ago. And it was minus 40 or something, uh, coldest we had. And I've done a few cold type environments, but nothing I'd consider too extreme. You know, I think in some people's minds that was pretty extreme. But Did, did you say um, you, walk, yeah. you walked to the north? Yeah, walked and hitchhiked. So we got the aim was to just do it cheap. So we didn't really have any money to do much. So what what time uh, of year did you? I spent a lot of I spent many years in Norway, so I'm fascinated. What type? What time it, was it? Summer or winter? January. So it was winter. Ooh, that's January's. cold to be hitchhiking in January, mate. <clears throat> it was cold. Yeah, really cold. And did you do? Did you get on skis at all? No, no, I just walked. It was roads, tracks, you know. When we got to the north point, we had to walk the last 70 kilometres through snow-drifted roads. The roads were closed and it was it was quite tricky, but we didn't have, yeah, we just normal walking boots. Yeah, I've been thinking about that because I ran the length of the UK. I'm going to cycle the length of America or mountain bike the length of America um, next year right uh that's the plan anyway and then i'm thinking to do the sort of tri triumvirate the the the, the can't think of the word the, but the golden trio i might ski the length of scandinavia um, cool. you good 
Yeah, well, you got to, you know, you're only as young as you decide to make your life, if you ask me. It's, um, yeah, life full of adventure. Yes. And can you explain what is bushcraft? Um, bushcraft, well, basically it's living off the land, isn't it? Living off, um, surviving off what you've got in your environment. So the bushcraft I teach is normally forest-based and building shelters, making fires, uh, foraging for food, making traps. Um, yeah, just sort of getting water, obtaining water and things like that. And basically just living off your surroundings. And uh, like you were saying before, that more of a natural way that ancestors used to live. And um, yeah. Is it fair to say as well, it's, it's rekindling a lot of very important skills that we've lost you know, due to technology, skills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think we've obviously nowadays most people are sat at home on the computers and, and sort of out of touch with the actual real natural world. And it's going basically just chucking yourself into the natural world and, and living the way that people would have done, you know, in the forests a couple of hundred years ago, I it was. Yeah, and obviously, I guess we're talking. Ray, got to give Ray Mears a mention. Yeah, I think Ray Mears, and then they highlighted it, haven't they, and um, made it more popular nowadays. Yeah, I do like when I first saw Ray Mears on television. I thought, bloody hell, I can just watch this. I could just watch episode after episode. It was. Uh, he's done some great. He's done some great TV work. Wealth of knowledge, doesn't he? Mm. Yeah. yeah, he wanted to join the Royal Marines, funny enough. Right. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it's a medical reason he couldn't join or, or, or what it was. You do meet a lot of people that say, my mummy wouldn't let me. <laughs> I don't think that's you, Ray, sorry. I'm not going to slag Ray off because I want, to, want him to come on the podcast. <laughs> All right. But, uh, yeah, and he's. I I made my first bushcraft nut, uh, blade last year. I think it was might might have been a bit before that. Um, that because that's something that when you understand the the sort of um, what can we say the the idea behind a proper bushcraft knife, like cultures of Inuit sort of cultures, indigenous cultures have used for many years. Yeah, um, and the the importance of having a sharp knife, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's important to be able to do everything you need to do, whittling your wood and things, and cutting your whatever you need to cut, really, yeah. And can you make fire by friction? Uh, I can do. I can do like a hand drill and a bow drill, but it's something I don't do very often, so I'm not, I wouldn't say I was amazing at it, but I can do it. It's surprisingly hard work, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it is difficult. It's yeah, I've, I've never managed to do it simply because I've, I've always picked the wood myself in a forest and I'm probably mm. picking the wrong material. You can buy it, I think, online. You can buy fire start, you know, bushcraft fire starting kits right. where yeah. they've already chosen the right, the right wood for your, for, your, for your drill and your base plate and stuff. Mm. And in what capacity then are you leading expeditions, Chas, and 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 doing um, bushcraft? So I, I haven't done much bushcraft for a while, but I, I normally in a forest environment, I get a big group of people and we 
build shelters, we'd make fires, etc. School groups as well, like, like large school groups. Um, expeditions, I work for an expedition company called Outlook. I take um, students every year on expeditions, mainly in African regions, uh, doing like a project in the country, doing a trek in the country, and doing activities uh, like normally sort of wildlife based, you know, sort of safaris and things like that. And um, yeah, also my own expeditions. I've, like I say, the Madagascar trip was an expedition I put together with a team, and I led that team across Madagascar. Uh, along the Mangoki River, and yeah, just just wherever really. How how was it being in a team as opposed to being solo? Because that's a a lot more implications, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think I found it more difficult being in a team because um, you've got to look after everyone else, not just yourself. And any kind of problems that happen, it's not just you that has to deal with them. You've got all these people around you that might be suffering or mentally finding it difficult and then you've got to then be mentally strong to deal with what they're dealing with as well as you, you know what's just happened yourself and but I think yeah I, I can manage teams well and I can hopefully I can try and bring them you know out of any kind of problematic state of mind and but yeah it does add, it does add an extra sort of element to the difficult part of the expedition and getting through them difficult areas is it were any of the people on your team novices? You know, were they kind of new to the outdoors environment? Uh, I guess, yeah. I mean, the the, the 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 two. I had a guy and two girls on the team. The two girls were probably a bit more novice. They hadn't done much extreme expedition stuff, and I think there was definitely moments when we were walking through rivers, for example, where you could see they were scared, and um, it was quite difficult for them to get their minds around that and just being away from sort of civilization for such a long time is, is, is a really, really difficult thing if you've never done it, if, you know, if people haven't done it before and you like the thought of it, but sometimes the reality of it's not always straightforward and um, you do miss home comforts, and especially when you're going through different difficult times. You can't choose what you want to eat. You can't sort of relax where you want to relax and it's... Mm -hmm. It's difficult, really. Well, it is. It's funny, isn't it? That um, well, not funny. I'm. I'm it, it's interesting that some people they just don't like sleeping in a tent. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Some people, I think they just. I. I don't know if it's just a case of experience as far as if they've ever been camping. Maybe they've had a miserable time in the rain or whatever. And mm. Maybe not the right equipment or something like that. And I think sometimes people's experiences when they were younger might affect what they want to do when they're older and things but yeah I can't I can never understand why people wouldn't enjoy just being out in a tent and uh, I love it but I can, yeah I've got a tent up in a garden at the minute and I'm going to sleep in it every night this summer <laughs> so yeah so Chaz listen will you come back on the podcast and when you get your when you're about to set off on your next adventure and tell us all about it. Yeah, I definitely will. Yeah. After, after, well, at the moment it's difficult to know when we're allowed to travel, but since I'm sort of setting off, I'll, I'll let you know. And Do you have any idea what it's going to be? Um, well, the aim was to try and walk the length of the orange river, which is in Southern Africa. It's a 1,400 mile river, uh, runs through pretty much the, the whole width of pretty much three quarters of the width of South Africa starts in Namibia, finishes in Lesotho. Uh, but yeah, it's 1,400 miles, Orange River. 
Japan walked us from sea to source along that river. Wow, yeah. that sounds like an ama amazing trip. Does it go yeah. through the Kruger National Park? Uh, I don't think it doesn't go through any national parks. I don't think so. In, in sort of, you know, if, in my mind, as far as what what I've been through before, it, it seems relatively straightforward as far as not having too many issues with national parks and and places I wouldn't be able to walk. So I think it's yeah, it's relatively trouble free as far as wildlife things like that. But, Brilliant. Well, I wish you. Well, I won't wish you the best. Best of luck. Now I'll do it when you come on a podcast and tell us all when you've got all your planning down, and um, that would be an interest. Interesting to hear that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No worries. So I'm going to say goodbye. So to everyone at home, thank you ever so much for watching the Bought the T-shirt podcast. Look after yourselves. Thank you, and thank you for your support, Charles. You've been an amazing guest. Um, I've just Thank found it fascinating from beginning to end. As you can tell, it's just right up my, it's right up my my street. I hope one day we can go on an adventure together. Yeah, definitely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Or just go for a trip in your van and <laughs> put the tent yeah. up. Do some camping out. Be good, man. So yeah, Chaz, all the very best. Massive thank you again. Let's speak thank soon. You. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers, all mate. Right. Cheers. Cheers. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.